Okay, so Giants of the Faith continues. Of course, our tagline, how the Christians of the past help us live for Christ today. Is my message gone? My message is still gone. Nice. We've had a dramatic supernatural TV healing. At the, at the next right member here. class. A verified oh. miracle. Yes. What did you do different? That's crazy. Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Just went away. <laughs> wow. Yep. Pretty cool, huh? Okay, so this week we are talking about Mr. John Newton, and so some quick biographical facts. He was born July 24th, 1725 in London, and he died December 21st, 1807, at the ripe old age of 82. He's a little older than the other man. I know. That's, that's like in the 1800s, 1700s, 1800s, that's, that's saying something, right? His mother was a believer. She taught him the Westminster Catechism and uh, Confession of Faith. His father was a non-religious sailor. No interest in God whatsoever. His mom died when he was six. His father remarried, and basically his new wife wanted nothing to do with poor little John. So he was basically on his own. He had two years of formal schooling. That's it. From ages 8 through 10. Um... After that, he was basically self-taught, and he had zero theological formal education at all, which is amazing when we get into what he knew. He started sailing with his dad at age 11 and quickly followed in his footsteps and became, in his words, a debauched sailor, or debauched, if you want to go full New Jersey or New York accent, depending on how you want to do that. He became a captain on slave trading ships, which we will definitely be talking about. And he would probably have still been a captain, but he developed epilepsy. And an epileptic, you can't really drive stuff. So he was forced to retire. He married his wife, Mary Catlett. He met her when she was 13. It took seven years for him to convince her uh, to marry him. And so they got married at 24, but they were married for 40 years as well. So, yeah, kind of something that... Already he's different a little bit, just in biographical kind of sketch, like he lived way later than the other people did, and uh, he was married once, and he married he was married for a long time. So some, some, some good, wholesome kind of nuggets in the middle of his debauched sailor occupation. So let's talk about some of his key themes. Of course, as we always do, we start with the conversion. And so he went into the Navy at age 18 against his will, and he said his life descended into complete sin and debauchery. And I can read a little highlight, because we have a lot from him, fortunately, in his own words. Um, his biographer, this guy named Richard Cecil, who was also on the ship with him, one of his friends, he said the companions he met were met with here, so on the ships, were the complete ruin of his principles. He wrote, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes. No, so far as I can remember, the least sensibility of conscience. Those are two really bad things to have together. Right? You have no fear of God and you have no conscience. He said, my love for Mary, which was his wife, or at that time probably his future wife, was the only restraint he had left. He, uh, was not a very good sailor at times. He tried to get off the ship. He tried to desert uh, the ship. He was caught and he was put in prison. He was publicly stripped and he was whipped and he was degraded from his office and a bunch of things. So he was, he was very much into the uh, lifestyle of a sailor. 
He was actually kicked off a ship once when he was 20 years old, and he was kicked off a ship as they were going by this island. And they were basically like, we're done with this guy. They kicked him off, threw him on the island, and just kept sailing. And he was on that island for a year and a half. I don't know what kind of people were on that island, but they quickly enslaved him, which is really ironic when you think about it, because he was a captain on a slave trading ship, and then he himself became a slave for about a year and a half in that island, on that island. Um, eventually, another ship happened upon the island, and the captain, captain happened to know his father and was able to uh, negotiate his freedom. So he got freed from his captivity. And back on the seas, one storm in particular was very violent. He literally awoke to his cabin filling with water, and he cried out to God for mercy. And that is when he actually got saved. And you can read a little bit. <laughs> Story time from his, from his own words. Okay, sit like all good storytellers sit. <laughs> he awoke that night to a violent storm as his room began to fill with water. As he ran for the deck, the captain stopped him and he had to fetch. He sent him to fetch a knife. The man who went up in his place was immediately washed overboard. He was assigned to the pumps and he heard himself say. If this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. It was the first time he had expressed the need for mercy in many years. He worked the pumps from three in the morning until noon the next day, slept for an hour, and then took the helm and steered the ship until midnight. Did you guys get that? <laughs> Literally fighting for his life, right? Adrenaline's rushing and everything like that. He pumps, which I'm sure was not an electric pump. Sure, it was elbow grease, right? From three in the morning until noon the next day, slept for an hour, and then steered the ship until midnight. At the wheel, he had time to think back over his life and his spiritual condition. And about six o'clock the next day, it seemed as though there might be hope. I thought I saw the hand of God displayed in our favor. I began to pray. I could not utter the prayer of faith. I could not draw near to a reconciled God and call him Father. The comfortless principles of infidelity were deeply riveted. The question now was how to obtain faith. He found a Bible, and he got help from Luke eleven thirteen, which promises the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He reasoned, if this book be true, the promise in this passage must be true likewise. I have need of that very spirit by which the whole was written in order to understand it aright. He has engaged here to give that spirit to those who ask. I must therefore pray for it, and if it be of God, he will make good on his own word. He spent the rest of the voyage in deep seriousness as he read and prayed over the scriptures. On April 8th, they anchored off Ireland, and the next day the storm was so violent that he would have surely been sunk if, if they were still at sea. So they were they anchored for a little while after the storm, but then they, the storm caught up to them again, and he said, we were still out there, we were definitely sunk. Newton described what God had done in those two weeks. Thus, as far as I answered, or thus, as, thus far I was answered, that before we arrived in Ireland, I had a satisfactory evidence in my own mind of the truth of the gospel, as considered in itself, of the exact suitableness to answer all my needs. I stood in need of an almighty Savior, and for such a one I found described in the New Testament. Thus far the Lord had wrought a marvelous thing. I was no longer an infidel. 
I was heartily renounced, or I heartily renounced my former profaneness and had taken up some right notions, was seriously disposed and sincerely touched with a sense of the undeserved mercy I had received in being brought safe through many dangers. Start to see some of the hints of amazing grace, right? I was sorry for my past misspent life and purposed on immediate reformation. I was quite freed from the habit of swearing, which seemed to have been as deeply rooted in me as a second nature. Thus, to all appearances, I was a new man. So his conversion rather dramatically through almost losing his life in a huge storm. Just in that little bit of his conversion, what are some uh, observations, applications from that? What things stuck out to you about his testimony, his conversion? Anything common themes with anybody else that we've noticed? I can make just as long as you Yes! Don't worry. Oh, I can't see it. Oh, because I'm streaming that. What do you think? What jumped out? What about the Word of God? Pretty key, huh? He read it. Yeah, he read it. Another guy, shocker, read the Bible and got saved. Right? That's like the third one in a row. When That's... I was reading this afternoon, I read that he self-taught himself uh, Latin and geometry. Yeah. Well, if I had the choice of self-teaching myself Latin geometry or the Bible, I would choose the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> no, <I don't> <laughs> yep. Geometry. He definitely had the, kind of like, uh, I can't remember who we studied last, Brainerd. He kind of had that academic kind of mind, like instantly. That's, that's, even though he had no Even though he had two years. Yeah. Well, I mean, he was a sailor, right? Yep. So naturally, you would have to pick up those skills mm. when he's writing over the sea. Yeah, mm -hmm. yep, that's true too. Yep. Yeah, especially geometry. Yeah. What about his sense of sin? Was yeah. It, was it a big deal to him or was it just kind of. Hmm? Not at the beginning, it sounds like. Yeah. yeah, not at the beginning, right? Right. But the salvation that he realized he needed a Savior, right? Because that was great sin. What he realized before reading the Bible that he, could, that he couldn't approach God. Right. So how did he know that from his training as a child? Yeah, maybe yeah. through his mom. Through his right. mom, probably, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. just that guilt, like, kind of, if I'm so sinful, like, how can I even approach right. yeah. this God? That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, that, that he realized. That. And he found his way to that verse. That's all in the Holy Spirit. You know, because most people are like, you know, well, I'm not so bad. Why wouldn't God save me? Yeah. 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 Sure. Is there a correlation between his seeking of the Holy Spirit and his new conviction? Mm. Which new conviction? The conviction of his behavior and his oh. lifestyle. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I would say absolutely. Previously, his conscience yeah. was seared. Yeah. I mean, like, you look, you could just imagine, like, what a devout sailor would look like, right? And he got to the level of being so convicted about his swearing. Like, you'd think that's number, like, 300 on the list of things to clean up, but he mentions it. Yeah, I'd say there was deep conviction. There was deep transformation in that. What about the sovereignty of God? Right? He's on this island. He gets kicked off a ship. 
he gets kicked off a ship and then another one just happens to go by and they happen to know his father and you know this happens to negotiate freedom of a slave which probably wasn't that easy back then yeah I wouldn't call that luck yeah right <laughs> definitely luck no not luck and his idea too of the cry of mercy you know and how kind of beautiful that is you know to see the desperate cry of someone and, and, and uh, the book said he hadn't cried for mercy hadn't prayed hadn't do anything didn't done anything in so long but then he cries for mercy and how God hears the cry of a sinner you know, for mercy that's it must be a beautiful a beautiful sound in our Savior's ears to hear a sinner finally cry for mercy so so good dramatic conversion uh, let's look at another theme. Of course, he was a slave trader. So Newton was an active part of the African slave trade. Okay, so pause. One of the common atheistic or agnostic or progression, progressive Christian uh, comments about Christianity is that it, 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 it defends or promotes, or the Bible itself promotes slavery. What would we say to such a thing? Look, even one of your guys, your famous guys, your hymn writers, for crying out loud, was a slave trader. How do we respond? Angelo first. You already talked, but you're coming back to you. Well, yes, I'll talk about like the uh, definition of what slavery was in biblical times compared to now. Yep. Um, when reading like any ancient literature, you have to take in the, the era uh, the vocabulary of the time. Context, context, yeah. and context, mm -hmm. yep. <clears throat> so like when you see a slave in the Old Testament, most of them was like social class workers. Mm -hmm. Yep. And they typically became slaves to pay debts. Yeah. So Old Testament slavery in the Hebrew era and also New Testament slavery in Greco-Roman was completely different than chattel slavery in the American South. Yes. Mm -hmm. Completely different. Chattel slavery... Well, I wouldn't say completely different as a it, Universal truth. I would agree. Maybe I went too far with completely different. Uh, well, but I would duly I would noted. Agree that the generalized term. Yeah. Accepted. The the big difference being yeah. what one was most likely voluntary, voluntary. Yeah. and the other one was not. Right. You were, you were. What he was doing was driving to Africa. Right. The lynch mob would jump out, steal, kidnap people, drag them back onto the ship, and then take them to America. Right. That's totally. I mean, you're still a slave. I'm sure there was <clears throat> very bad treatment in Roman society as well as Hebrew society, but that, that's probably the common thread. But the big difference was voluntary versus involuntary. And, you know, chattel slavery in the South, you were considered someone's property. Just like a, a tool on the farm, right? It's just a human being. Ron, were you going to say something, Ron or Ron? Indentured servitude is a little different. Yep. And it's analogous to the concept of trying to repay a debt. Yeah. So they voluntarily entered indentured uh, servanthood to pay off the debt. And once that was paid off, they generally made a price go. Well, that was where yeah. I was going to go. Yeah. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I, I think the people that make the argument that uh, the Bible is an opponent of the concept <clears throat> of slavery don't understand that there were thousands of years of economic culture of almost like a, a social economy that was going on in society. If they, it was actually 
the first person who ever said that there is such a thing as an individual value outside of that economy was Christ, yeah. which is why the original abolitionists were people like Spurgeon uh, in England. And there was a whole yeah. throng of Christian ministers because Christ's message, and Paul reiterates it, is that in Christ there is no slave or free. There yeah. is no... Right. You know, who you, yeah. your identity in Christ gives you a value outside of your social economy. Yeah. And so, without the Christian concept of an intrinsic value, abolition wouldn't have really had much of a platform to even figure out what was wrong with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's also why Paul <coughs> talks a lot about communal adoption because there's mm-hmm. the concept of caste. Mm-hmm. You were born into a slave trade. Yep. Work trade. Yep. You were born into a slave family. There wasn't much you could do about it. Yeah, but absolutely, bro. The idea that uh, identity in Christ and and freedom through Christ that transcends all of those castes and your other worldly identities, absolutely. The other day, the first time Spurgeon could look inside of somebody's face who had a different melatonin color, and he was like, you know, do you know what I see when I see this man? Yeah. He would be in front of a, a. huge platform of tons of people who were all looking at him look at someone who was a slave in England and he would say, I see the mother day. Yeah. You know, and it was yeah. just like, wow, how do you Yeah. Everybody knows what the Imago Day is? Image Speaking Latin. Yeah. Image of God. Yeah. Anybody know where to turn in the Bible to say that it's quite not true that scripture does not scripture actually condemns slavery? As we know it, chattel slavery. <clears throat> First Timothy one, uh, starting in verse eight, says, "Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this: that the law was not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for the murderers, for the sexually immoral, for the men who practice homosexuality." for the enslavers, for the liars, for the perjurers, for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So Paul literally lists enslavers, right, which is what we're talking about here, right? Not someone entering into slavery to pay off a debt, but someone who's kidnapped and forced into slavery and owned like a piece of property. He says that's part of the reason why the law was given, so that people were convicted in their unholy and profane behavior. So. Scripture does not, and as Rhoda pointed out as well, and we'll see in a little while, uh, Christianity was, was one of the driving forces to abolish slavery. So. <clears throat> but what do we do again? Again, here we're stuck with a guy who is not perfect. Right? Much like we talked about Martin Luther and his little tirade against the Jews, right? What do we do? Do we say, oh, it's John Newton, and we look the other way for all of his faults? How do we, how do we deal with people who have sinned, but yet have done so much good? Define good. <laughs> well, John Newton has done much to help. He's, he's been very helpful as far as Christian history. So did he continue as a slave trader after he became a Christian? Oh. We shall wait and see. <laughs> but no, we did not. So that, that would be important, obviously. Yeah. Um, you know, and so, because if someone claims to be a Christian yet continues in sin, yeah. then you have to wonder, you yes. know, are they, what is their level of commitment? Are, are they truly committed? 
Yeah. You know, now sometimes it takes time for people yep. to change their ways. Yep. Um, Great point. Right. But to answer your question, the Holy Spirit um, has no limits with redemption and transformation. Amen. Right. Uh, sin is sin. Yeah. Right? Uh, grace is great. Yeah, the old, we're all sin is, Yeah, yeah it, it's, it is the uh, if we um, reject the Holy Spirit, but other than that, sin is sin. Yeah. Uh, uh, it, it, yeah. it doesn't come in one, two, three, four. Right. Yeah. yeah. There's there's the right. So the wages of, the of sin is death. It doesn't say oh the wages of murder or the wages of this. Or sure. Any sin. Right. Yeah, I mean, all sin is equally damning, right? right. But not all sin is equally as damaging, right? Some That's some damaging. sin is more damaging than others. That's true, right? Yeah. I think the consequences uh, for right. some of the more complicated right, sins and there are some sins that are ministerially disqualifying, right? Like if I committed adultery, I would expect that that would mean that I'm out of the ministry probably forever, right? And that's probably the way it should be, right? So it's it's it depends, right? And and also, though, um, Ken brought up a good point, right? We're talking about somebody before conversion. Right. Right? Um, but also, uh, Piper helps us, and then he brings in a little quote of John Newton himself. <clears throat> he says, With the help of the life of John Newton, I want to say it again, and make no mistake, our heroes have feet of clay. There are no perfect Christians, lay people or pastors. Newton himself warns us, in my imagination, I sometimes fancy I could create a perfect minister. I would take the eloquence of blank, the knowledge of whomever, the zeal of whomever, the pastoral meekness, tenderness, piety of whoever, then putting them all together into one man, I would say to myself, this is the perfect minister. Now there is one, capital O, who, if he chose to, could actually do this, but he never did. He has seen fit to do otherwise, and to divide these gifts to every man severely as, as he will. Right? So Piper says, so neither Newton nor we will ever be all we should be in this life. Right? And, and, and the idea that, right, there's no perfect pastors, there's no perfect Christians, we don't idolize anybody. We have to really make sure, we have to look at this, and we don't want to cover this up and say, yeah, you're right, he was a slave trader. And that was sin, and the Bible condemns it. But that's the danger, again, of idolizing some person over God himself, because we know that there's there's no such perfect person. So call the sin, sin. Yeah? Isn't there, in one of the subject Gospels, when Christ was talking about to him who has been forgiven every much, that he, yeah. his understanding of his concept of his own forgiveness is so deep compared to the one that didn't have a lot to be forgiven. Should be. The, the, right? Yeah. The woman who uh, washed his feet with the expensive perfume, she yeah. loves much because she was forgiven much. Yeah. That one, yeah. Yeah, I think we see that already in the life of, of John Newton, right? That he he's he knows how much he's been forgiven. You know, he knows how depraved he was. And so he's, there's that sense of appreciation and as we get to the amazement of what he's been forgiven of. Yeah. That's what Paul went through. He literally killed Christians. Yeah. Uh, but guys like that are in the Bible, right? Yeah, massacred. He's one of the. Yeah. Spoke. I don't know how many books he authored. Yep. Yep. Uh, Newton also points out for the first six years after his conversion, he had no Christian friend and no faithful ministry to advise him. 
So here he is, a Christian now, probably still sailing, as Ken said. You know, it takes a while, right? Getting more and more convicted of what he's doing, probably reading the Bible, not being discipled, not in a local church because he lives at sea, right? And just that idea of that's like six years of his life that he didn't have anybody to come alongside him. I'm sure sailors in that day, he probably didn't have another Christian on the ship, so. So I was thinking is maybe the sailing ministry at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And again, God working through the Holy Spirit, he became captain of a slave trading ship, and later, after he retired, he became so convicted about the slave trade that he joined forces with a guy named William Wilberforce to abolish it. Um, I was watching a little video, which I'll pro hopefully show you a little snippet of towards the end. But something that was called, I never heard this term, maybe my friend Rhoda has, the Eusebian temptation. Or it's, it's the question of, okay, so I feel called to being a Christian. Uh, I should probably just quit my job and join the ministry. Right? And, and that's what William Wilberforce said to John Newton at that time when he was his pastor. And John Newton's like, you're crazy. You're in Parliament. You could do so much more for the cause of the kingdom. Stay in Parliament. He's like, no, I think I'm called to be a pastor. And he's like, no, 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 stay there. So he stayed there, and Wilberforce was the one that introduced the measures to get uh, slavery abolished uh, in, in England. So John Newton died in 1807. Nine months previously, he got to witness the act being signed into law to abolish the slave trade. So it took a while, but just that idea, again, of the faithful pastor then counseling his people like and I've had that conversation too with people that you know stay where you are like you know unless you unless we can really look and trace and see a call to ministry and a gifting or whatever like sometimes just stay where you are and let God work through you and the, the impact that you will have there so yeah his his uh, conviction and then working through that God did amazing things through it uh, let's look at him um, as as growth, spiritual growth, and as a pastor. Wendy um, indicated correctly that he was a ferocious student. Once retiring from the sea, he took a job in Liverpool. He began at this point the Great Awakening was sort of happening, so he he uh, started listening to the preaching of George Whitfield. He had a nickname of Little Whitfield because he was apparently a groupie. Whenever he came to preach, he was always there. He became friends with Whitfield. He devoted himself to rigorous study. He learned Greek and Hebrew and other languages. Not to mention, he had to teach himself to read English first, right? Because he only had two years of schooling. Yeah. He also learned Latin and French. So he learned Greek, Hebrew, and Hebrew's terrible. Greek, Hebrew, English, Latin, and French, while at sea, by himself. you got to be kidding me. He read the best writers in divinity, he said, and he wanted desperately to serve in the ministry. And when he was 39 years old, he took his first pastorate. He served there for 16 years. His next pastorate he took at the age of 54, and he served there for 27 years. He gave his final sermon at age 81 and died at 82. That's not like a good plan, honey. <laughs> if we can, if we can. Retiring in Florida. 
No, I never have this deal. <laughs> when I stop making sense from the pulpit, then it, it. Well, hopefully I'll be able to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> you might need someone younger to tell you. What was a good sermon, honey? Are you sure? Um, <clears throat> he finished well. I'm going to read the quote. Um, this is just such a, an amazing thing to think about. Um, he died December 21st, 1807 at age 82. A month before he died, he expressed his settled faith. It is a great thing to die, and when flesh and heart fail, to have God for the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Psalm 73. I know in whom I have believed, and he is able to keep that which I have committed against that great day. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me on that day. What a, what a focus he had as he was dying. His famous quote as he was dying, I wrote there, he says, My memory is nearly gone. But I remember two things, that I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That quote. It's a great deathbed quote. Write that down. <laughs> but just thinking about that, some, some observations, some applications, thinking about his studies, thinking about his ministry, thinking about his faith, what things resonated with you? I don't know enough languages. <laughs> I don't know enough languages. Okay. I don't know enough alphabets. The Hebrew <laughs> alphabet enough to just trying to remember all those letters. I'll bake in a bellet. Yeah. <laughs> what else? What other things jump out at you as you see his growth, his study, his pastorate? When I was looking at this discussion, I think what the mother was a nonconformist, but I don't understand what that means. Could have meant purity. Probably did. Yeah. I guess compared to today, the length of time he spent at single churches is pretty, like, you know, like, like yeah. you know, but that's compared to today. I'm it's sure. a great In those yeah. years, people did it through the until they died. Mm -hmm. That's a great observation. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to go back to the same ministry. I think we have such an idea of evangelism and outreach of finding pretty people who look like us and mm -hmm. do life like us. And everyone wants to reach out. And you want to talk to a smelly sailor? We want to go to the burbs, you know, with our minivans and pass out tracks to comfortable people that aren't sailors. <laughs> but yeah. you know what? God uses stinky sailors with scurvy and epilepsy. And, and lots of cursing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They're all made in the image of God, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ronald. In Luke 7, when Jesus' feet are anointed, mm. uh, he says, Your sins are forgiven to the woman. <clears throat> but before that, he said to the disciples, You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Here we see the inverse in that. Yeah, that man is forgiven much. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he knows it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What does that say about cultivating, you know, 
of course we have the good news of the gospel, but the good news of the gospel isn't good news unless we really dwell on what we've been saved from. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not good news until we know the bad news. Right? Angela, you want to say something? I have a question about that passage. Yeah. Um, I was told that the significance of that was because like the ointment was all that she had and she gave it to him. Is that is that true? Uh, I'd have to look at it, but I think you're on the right track. I have heard something that I know was certainly expensive, right? Wasn't yeah. that the time where the disciples were like, what is she doing? Yeah, like, yeah, we could have yeah. fed the poor with this, you know? <clears throat> yeah. And it was a, uh, I think we were just talking about that at Bible study this morning, just very briefly. Just the idea of, I think she's the one that, you know, we're still talking about her. And that's what Jesus said. Like, mm-hmm. and wherever the gospel is preached, you're going to be talking about it. She was anointing with her burial. Yep. Yeah. There's yeah, probably yeah. significance. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, as always, there's there's kind of common themes that converge in that, but yeah. A couple implications I thought of, too, is how hard are we going after spiritual maturity? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> myself included, right? I mean, I think nowadays when we think of, like, I don't know, I watched a skit recently, and it was like, it just made me laugh because it was comparing, like, a 21st century like her, like Christian versus like the first century, like we have the Bible right here. Yeah. Yet how many of us dedicated to like wow, like verses back then? Like yeah. anyone would give anything to read Jesus's words. So yeah. even for John Newton to be like, all right, he had no education, and for him to just study language after language, like that's hard. Like as an adult, yeah, it is very difficult. <laughs> so I cannot even imagine like doing that. So it just shows his absolute devotion at that point and I think that's something we can all look up to. It's like knowing like we could always be more devoted. What in our time. what drives that? No. Yeah. I think the Holy Spirit drives that too. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I, we know because that's kinda like Superman stuff. I mean, yeah, it's well, yeah, you know, you have the exceptionally gifted people, of course, which we would probably say, yeah, I mean, kind of like yeah. you read R.C. Sproul's biography or something, you feel like you've done nothing with your life. Like, there, there are exceptional people, exceptionally gifted people, but there's certainly something to be said for the Spirit enabling us and us relying on the Spirit and getting after it, right? Right. Yeah. There's nothing like for people who have no concept of the fear of God. It's funny how all of them have a fear of their own mortality. Yeah. And so as soon as they have that dark storm experience and you and you have this big soul awakening where your soul's eyeballs open up and you realize, oh your my goodness. Soul's eyeballs. I am a human and I have an end. <laughs> and all of a yeah. sudden you wake up and then there's just drive anxiety and it's like, okay, suddenly life needs to have some meaning. You have some questions to answer. Yeah. And, and that idea of I have an end, right? Yeah. The other implication I had is how are we planish, planning to finish well? Mm-hmm. I think God also likes to use people who are broken. Oh, sure. Well, so, yeah. Because then it's God's glory showing that mm-hmm. God can change people. Yep. Because clearly, you know, he was, uh, you know, a devout sailor. Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's God who was working in his heart. And, yeah. And God who was changing him. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. You must have been a ferocious reader. You must have read everything. Yeah, once you learn to read. Yeah, you know, once you, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a miracle. <laughs> Got that done out of the way pretty quick. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. How do you read the Bible on the ship if you couldn't read? It's just a matter of when and how much yeah. and right. you know. Yeah. 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 You have to assume if you did. He, he yeah, he must have slotted through some it. reading. 
Yeah. The more that we got. But that idea that we, we all have an end, an end point, right? And how are we planning <coughs> to finish well? Right? Those are things to think about. Yeah. It's not morbid. It's just how are we going to finish well? <clears throat> he also um, he was characterized by something called habitual tenderness, which was a great love towards the lost and his church. He would literally, it said he would look at lost people and he would love them at first sight. He just felt a great compassion for them. He had an active ministry to the afflicted and especially to the depressed. And the guy that we skipped, that we'll see if we get back to, William Cooper, there's a tie between the two of them because um, Newton was his pastor. And uh, Cooper, talk about depression, like there were weeks and weeks where he just couldn't function, couldn't do anything. And so Newton took him in. And he basically lived with Newton. And one quote said that Newton's house was an asylum for the perplexed and the afflicted. That was his heart. And he just had a perpetual kind of kindness towards people. When he, a uh, little trivia, when he moved in, Mr. Cooper, they wanted to write hymns together, called the Only Hymns, because they were in Only England. Uh, but Cooper couldn't, couldn't fulfill his end of the deal because he was too depressed. Um, so Newton took over, and Newton wrote 300 hymns. <laughs> One per week for quite a long time. Yeah. No big deal. No big deal. Yeah. But he was also very gentle in handling controversy and theological differences. Uh, he was a five-point Calvinist, but he was very, very gentle in the way that he handled uh, people. Their liberalism was on the rise, of course, and all of that, but he was very gentle. His quote was, my principal method for defeating heresy is by establishing truth, not necessarily going to battle. Um, and he quoted James 1.20, which says, I'm going to read it in King James because it's just so beautiful. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Think about that. Thank you. We're, we're, we're adding wrath to this problem. That's not going to work the righteousness of God. So other observations, applications from all that. From his love, from his ministry to Mr. Cooper and others. One thing that was mentioned in the book that I thought was really good, they had mentioned that there was another pastor nearby who, they had had discussions, yep. but, you know, Newton would never be, like, blunt or, you know, yeah. mean to him, even though this guy had, like, ripped him apart publicly, apparently. Yeah. Um, but then... Yeah, mocked him, literally listened to his sermons and, and made fun of him. Yeah. Right. But I think it came down to that even that man confessed that at some point Newton ministered to two of his dying members... Uh, and like this pastor had not gone to them in their dying moments, and Newton had had you know again gone to someone else's parish and taken care of these people, and it so convicted this man in a way that it it really changed his I guess his outlook theologically. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So you got the book. Yeah. Oh yeah. Nice. Yeah. That's why when you skip Cooper, I'm like, I can't even pages. Sorry about that. <laughs> 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 but it was such a good example of like yeah he could have browbeat this guy and like like you know I know listen to what my yeah. opinions are but right, by right, serving right. these like two dying congregants that weren't even his 
it accomplished everything that he would have wanted from this guy. You know, yeah. like it showed God's love so much more meaningful than in argumentation. Yeah, yeah. So then, what's the balance, right? Is it is it all just uh, just be the nice guy and try and do truth? How does that get balanced with actually being bold and speaking truth? Or is there a balance? Or should there be a balance? Absolutely. We should be speaking the truth in love. Oh, okay. Well, Jesus had a way of balancing that. How he, he, I mean, he called the white woman at the well. It wasn't very balanced with the Pharisees, right? <laughs> no, no, no. But, but look at the woman at the but, well, but he how he treated it. her. He seemed to oh, yeah. finish it off and, 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 you know, to get his point across. I mean, yeah, he seemed to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. He seemed to finish it off with love, you know. But you know, uh, e even the commandments, you know, mm -hmm. yeah. grace of, of love, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, yeah. it's all about love. Yeah, you know? the greatest. Yep. Yeah, yeah. it's the first and great commandment. You know? Yep. And um, it's um, a thing they said in the book too is it, some people definitely said he was a little too on the softer side, right? Um, Newton. Yeah. After his death, as they report, many of his people went far astray, they said, from his church. And so it kind of looks back and it's like, was he a little too gentle? Was he a little too soft? Did he need to speak some more truth in a bold way or not? We don't know. But, but it is important to balance, right? Second uh, Timothy 4, verse 2 says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Right? The idea that there is that balance. You still need to reprove. You still need to rebuke. You still need to be, but you need to do it with complete patience. Right? Some, speak the truth in love. Right? Same idea. I've heard it says, uh, a crushed spirit you can't get over, but if you <clears throat> rebuke a wise man, and he loves you for it. Yeah. Proverbs. Yeah. yeah. So there's a difference between crushing someone's spirit and then presenting truth in a way that can guide them. Yeah. We need boldness, we need rigor, we need critical biblical thinking, but we need to balance it with grace. Right? One of the saddest things that we've lost in our culture is the ability to disagree with somebody. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. It instantly means if you disagree with them that you hate them. Yeah. I don't want to hear your ideas. You're you're doing violence to me or harm. You are not conforming to me. It's like the whole idea of why you go to college in the first place is to interact with other ideas. Right? So we should be able to have discussions with people that are respectful, mm -hmm. where we are speaking the truth in love, where if I disagree with Frank, it doesn't mean I hate Frank as a person. Right? Like just, we're just talking about different yeah. perspectives. It comes down to uh, we agree on some things, we disagree on some sure. other things, and we sometimes we agree just to disagree. Yeah, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, people seem to relate to that. Yep. It, it, I think that, that that's a sign of an effective and a, and a, and a, and a living and, and a, and a um, uh, Holy Spirit-filled uh, church and not, I mean, uh, fellowship. Yeah. That uh, the balance of, of love and discipline. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, of, 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 of the elder discipline, but yet God's discipline in Scripture. Yep. You know, and that's a tough balance. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, some, yeah. you go into some churches all fire and brimstone. In some churches, it's all grace and love, and no doctrine, right? Yeah, and, and there seems to be extremes. Yeah. Uh, and why, the answer is never in the extremes. And the pendulum needs to kind of 
swing in the middle, you know, and like, yeah, but. Yep. He had a very, um, Newton had a very realistic view of life. One quote said that his tender patience and persistence, right, in caring for difficult people came in part from a very sober and realistic view of what to expect from this world. He said, life is hard and God is good. Mm -hmm. We see that balance. He's like, yeah, of course people are hurting. Yeah, of course people are sick. Yeah, of course my friend Cooper is going through this extended trial of darkness, and he can't even write the hymns that we're supposed to write together, and he can't even get out of bed in my own house, right? Life is hard, but God is good. You know, that balance is just such a beautiful thing. You, you notice that, you know, um, uh, it seems like people that have gone through an awful, awful lot in their life, yeah. uh, they relate to people in a real, real special, loving way. And sometimes when you don't have life experiences, it's very hard yeah. to minister to someone when you when you had when you, when you when you really experienced no suffering at all. Yeah. Uh, and and that you notice that it, it seems cold. They kind of look at you. Yeah. You know what I mean. What's wrong with you? Why are you suffering? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm a human being. <laughs> and, and you know the face the face of someone talking to you about that. Yeah. Uh, they're exposed by the facial expressions. Yeah. I said that the Lord allowed me to get cancer so I know exactly what it feels like to be on that side of the bed. And I've never, I've visited a thousand people in the hospital, but I've never known what it was like to be in the hospital. But I did. So, yeah, absolutely. That's what it's supposed to do. It's supposed to cause you to understand and grow and some of those people that have been through the deepest waters right have the softest hearts and the gentlest hearts but you know that they're deep and they're, they're like uh, the Puritan oak trees right that we talked about and that comes through life through trials alright well last but certainly not least he was amazed uh, by the grace of God in salvation especially his salvation and some more quotes um Uh, it comes back to more than anything this he comes back to as the more more oh, this he comes back to more than anything as the source of tenderness which is his humility his gratitude of having been saved till the day he died he never ceased to be amazed that as he said at age 72 such a wretch should not only be spared and pardoned but reserved to the honor of preaching the gospel, which he had blasphemed and renounced. He said, this is wonderful indeed. The more thou hast exalted me, the more I ought to abase myself. He wrote his own epitaph. <laughs> John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith. He had long labored to destroy. He ministered nearly 16 years as curate and vicar of only in Bucks and 28 as the rector of these united parishes. He wrote in his narrative in the early 1760s, he said, I know that I know not that I have ever since met so daring a blasphemer. The hymn we know as Amazing Grace was written to accompany a New Year's sermon based on 1 Chronicles 1716. 
It says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord, my God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? That was his motivation behind writing Amazing Grace, the idea that he was saved from all of that. And, and, and that passage where David says, you know, Who am I, Lord? You brought me this far? I don't deserve this. He had a profound sense of that. So... There's a quick little video clip. I found a great video. Um, let me see if I can bring it up here. No cartoons? No, no <laughs> cartoons. <laughs> that's the other midweek. Let me see if I can get this. Uh, let's see, screen for you Facebook people. No, yeah, this is John Newton. At Newton's door. As Newton approached death, his eyesight and memory began to fail. One by one, those who had loved him came to say their goodbyes. To one of these close friends, William J., Newton made his now famous declaration My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things that I am a great sinner, and that Christ is a great Savior. He died in 1807 at the age of 82, nine months after witnessing the answer to many prayers, the successful passage of the Act for the Abolition of the Slave Trade. In the years following Newton's death, his song would have an amazing journey. In its original form, the hymn was all but forgotten in England, but nearly a half century after it being written, Amazing Grace began to appear in the American South being sung to a different tune from the original melody. This new music, the one which today seems to be so much a part of the hymn that we cannot imagine it otherwise, gave Newton's simple words a new power in life. It became the vehicle needed to take the song around the world. There are two thoughts about where the tune for Amazing Grace came from. Um, one is that it may have been a tune used by the slaves in the American South, but the other is that it um, may have been a tune brought across from Scotland by the early settlers, and I'm more inclined to go with that because um, Dr. Bruce Hindmarsh has gone into that very carefully, um, linking the tune with tunes used by the shape note singers. Performed by popular musicians as well as pipes and drums, Amazing Grace has become one of the most beloved melodies in history. It was sung by freedom marchers and civil rights movements in the American South, and before Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. It was sung with rejoicing in South Africa when Nelson Mandela was released from prison, and in Germany when the Berlin Wall fell. It was sung to comfort a mourning nation after the attacks on 9-11. The story of Amazing Grace reminds us that the same grace that transformed the life of a slave ship captain nearly three centuries ago can still change lives today. The true story of Amazing Grace is a story that continues. And as long as there are people in need of hope and deliverance, it will have no end. Cool stuff, huh? Yeah. Uh, yeah so I, I I don't know. I kind of got gooseies when you see the uh, 
the fact that that song, the hymn Amazing Grace, basically said was all but forgotten in England, right? And then the arrows went over to the American South. And, you know, who, who found hope and comfort in the song of Amazing Grace? The American slaves, you know, the slave trader. Then now, through his hymn, giving hope to American slaves. So, you know we're going to sing it, right? <laughs> yeah. Page 89. It should be page 1. It should be page 1. I don't know. There's five verses. 89. And it's like, you know, it's it, this is probably the most popular hymn in the world. That even people in our own culture like know know the words to this song. What's that? Wait. <laughs> False. Um, but I hope that you guys are able to have these words hit a little differently after you've kind of heard a lot about me. So. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear. The hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares. saints that have gone before us and of course as we've learned of John Newton tonight and uh, Lord an imperfect man uh, a man who was saved out of deep sin 
And the reality is, Lord, whether we lived a life that was as debaucherous as John Newton or the Apostle Paul, Lord, each one of us was just as far away from you and just as separated from you, and that your grace still should amaze us. And we pray that as we look back of the miracle of salvation, that we would continue to be astounded and amazed at what you have done in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are a great Savior who saves great sinners. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mike, just out of curiosity, yep. when, they, um, when he wrote the hymn, was it one of the only hymns or no? Like Amazing Grace? I think it was. Okay. I'm not sure. I had always heard as a kid, it's like, oh yeah, he went blind. So I always assumed he wrote the song, you know, I was blind, but now I see yeah. in his blindness. But it must have been when he was still sighted. Yeah, I, I don't know. don't know. It seems in the biography, yeah, that he only lost his sight in the last, like, two years, maybe? Yeah, like, it was, before yeah. he died. Yep. So I think so. Because yeah. I was assumed, you know, like the way it is, I once was blind, but now I see. I always had assumed that was his just. Oh right, right, right. It's like I, I was sighted, but I was blind to God, and when I lost my sight, then yeah, he was saw. Yeah. yeah. He saw clearly. Yeah. That's deep. Could be. <laughs> All right. Seen the movie? Amazing Grace. It's on YouTube. I was like, ooh, I haven't watched it. <laughs> Did you see? You watched the whole oh, thing? Oh, yeah. Yep. It looks really good. It's, it's fantastic. I think that was the guy that you saw briefly there in the sweater and the gray hair. I think that was the director. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah, this was kind of a 15-minute, that little video was kind of a 15-minute summary of some of the movie parts. Okay. Neat. Yeah. Alrighty, another successful midweek. Yay.